All right. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to Storytime with Dave. Look, here's the deal. Um, I recorded an interview with a friend of mine, Shane McMurdo, who was a comedian. Um, and we didn't have a place to go do it because my studio, which is my parents' basement, and, well, it's not really a studio, but I, I'll call it that for clout, baby. It was occupied, so we couldn't record it here. We were looking for a place to record, and we settled on this gazebo. Is that the word? Why does it sound weird? There's a gazebo outside in Westwood, and it was raining. And there were the sounds associated. There was the rain, the passing cars, which weren't... I mean, I just listened to the audio. Those weren't as annoying as when I did it with Nicole. You know, when Nicole and I did that one episode, I forget what it's called, but we were right next to the road, you know, on her porch. This, there was a little more distance, so they're they're not as bad. There was also a moment, and I'm, I decided to leave it. I was going to edit it out, but I thought it was funny because at the beginning, when Shane and I first started, Shane mentioned there's this horn in Westwood. It's like a really loud siren. For the whole town. I think it means that. I think all it means is that like something's going on. And you should look out for emergency vehicles. I think it's like. Just be aware. You know what I'm saying. But. Shane was like I hope that doesn't go off. And I was like it's not going to go off. And then it went off. That's around 5 minutes and 40 seconds. Maybe 5.50. And it's it's kind of loud. But it's just. It's funny. I mean it, I only. I paused it. After a few seconds. And then we just continued from there. But I thought that was funny. So I'm actually going to leave it. I said I was going to take it out, but I'm going to leave it. So, yeah, I mean, look. And then, not to mention, this is a sensitive mic. It's a good mic, but it is sensitive. I mean, it's like a recorder. It's not a microphone. But I was kind of using it. I was worried that because Shane has like a lower speaking voice, it's not as loud as I am. And so I... I was worried that he wasn't getting picked up on audio, so I started like holding it back and forth when, you know, like up towards him, like I was a a journalist or something, you know, they're like, would you care to comment? Would you care to comment? And they're holding, I didn't do it like that, but you know what I'm saying? I kind of put it back and forth. And so it makes a little noise when I put it back and forth. So yeah, the audio is not the best on this one, but I felt like it was a good interview and I didn't want to just scrap it entirely so you know and Shane is uh he's a new he's a newer comedian he's been in it like six months and there's not many comics I've seen become that funny that quickly he's one of the funnier he's become one of the funnier guys in the whole scene and he's six months in which is very impressive so yeah he's got a unique perspective it was a good interview uh we'll be having him back for sure so I hope you guys enjoy. I hope that the audio doesn't bother you too much, okay? All right, here you go. Here's the interview. All right, podcast listeners, welcome to Storytime with Dave, a new episode. We're outside right now. I'm with Shane McMurdo. Say hello to the people, Shane. What's going on? So we're outside. We were looking for a place to record. We were going to record at Barry's, which is an open mic that we frequent. But they were playing music in the background, so that was going to be an issue. And so we're looking around for a place to record, and we found this gazebo. 
in Westwood, and we're sitting on the ground in the gazebo. <laughs> and uh, so there will be some ambient sound. It's raining a little bit. There are cars driving by, but this will just be uh, this is just going to be part of the aesthetic oh, of I, this episode. I hope that loud ass like air raid siren doesn't go off. Like it might. It might. That shit's loud. Well, we gotta be on the lookout for it because that's gonna completely ruin this. But I have faith. And then also the train. We're about 50 feet away from the train. So that, that'll be beautiful if the train comes by. So maybe we can time this out and we'll avoid both of those things. So we were sitting here and then the American flag fell because, uh, I don't know. It it's was a sign, dude. It's a sign. It's the state <laughs> of our, our nation, you know? The flag fell. But Shane, the good soldier, oh god, <laughs> he picked it up off the ground. I would have just not pretended I didn't notice it, to be honest with you. But Shane, Shane is in the Navy. Do you want to talk about that at all? Nah, you don't want to talk about it. I mean, I can. I just I don't know like what you'd want me to talk about because it's there's so much in depth shit I could do that would just bore everybody. I mean, it bores me. Okay, well. Thank you for your service, Shane. Oh, God. Well, okay, what about that? Can we talk about that? What about it? Like, People come up to you and thank you for your service, and it bothers you. It does. Like, for multiple reasons. Like, one, like, I don't think I deserve it. For, because it's like, I'm perfectly fine health-wise, you know. And if it, everything wrong with me health-wise or physically-wise isn't because of military service. It's either dumb shit I did myself or, like, sports. But it's... I've never... Like in the Navy, we don't go to war. Like when it was like World War Two, Vietnam. Yeah, those guys did shit. But in like the modern day, we don't do anything. I've I've been to the Middle East twice, but I didn't do anything. So it's like what they're thanking me for isn't really anything I deserve. I don't do that much more than a regular a person with a regular job. And then for like a lot of people in the blue collar world, I, I do maybe even less. That's just the honesty of it. Plus, most people who do it. It's because, like, it makes them feel like they did a good deed. Right, so it's like someone making... Someone says something to feel better about themselves. Right. Like, like you know when people give, like, a homeless person, like, a dollar or two? You're not helping that guy's situation at all. Like, his life's gonna be 0% better. It just makes them feel good. Or, like, when you, you're at CVS and ask if you want to donate a dollar to the heart condition and they do it and they feel... It, it's the same thing. If they thank me for my service and I say thank you back they feel like it's like some sort of like gratification for them right okay and then if you feel like if you if you were like a World War II vet then you would you wouldn't be bothered by it don't well I mean I'd be I'd have a lot more to worry about if I was that fucking old but like yeah that's true like yeah like Vietnam like the veterans that have done shit you always know who they are because they always have like fucking bumper stickers or those hats and everything like that but it's like when I'm a veteran, it's like, unless I'm doing comedy, I'm not going to let anybody know I'm a veteran because it's just something that, it's like, because my, I'm not on good terms with the Navy right now. And when I get out, I'm going to be glad to get out. And it's almost like when you break up with a bad ex, you want them to stay in your past. That's that's how I look at the Navy. Yeah, so you're not going to have bumper stickers on your car and shit? No, no bumper stickers, none of those stupid-ass T-shirts, nothing like that. Like, I'll mention it in comedy be- because of the distinction factor, and that that's it. Not to mention that was your life for the last eight years, right? And you're supposed to talk about... I mean, on stage, you're going to talk about 
your life and the right. things that you know. So it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's my whole adult life has been in the Navy. I enlisted in December of 2010 when I was still a senior in high school. I graduated the summer of 11. A month later, I was in boot camp. And ever since then, this has been my life. I turned 27 in 13 days. And it's like, that's all, this is all I know. So what, what made you want to join the Navy in the first place when you were 18? Yeah, I was 18. So like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. My, I wasn't, I didn't have the dedication to high school. Like I wasn't stupid. I wasn't uneducated. I just didn't like it. So I knew like, how would I take that mindset and apply it to college? Especially when my dad, who's 33 years older than I am, is still paying off student loans. I didn't want to go through that. And I knew I couldn't just stay in Vegas, which is where I'm from, because at that time, unemployment was like 19%. Dude. Oh, my God. I kind of... Should we restart it? Can you pause it and like then edit it out? Okay, we're back. You see, I had to pause the audio because the, the air raid siren that we were referring to earlier that we were saying, you know what, we might miss this. And now there's a guy yelling. Everything that is loud is happening here in Westwood, New Jersey because after the siren, about five, not five, three uh, fire trucks drove by blaring their sirens like they got to make everything about them, you know, <laughs> which is ridiculous, but they just drove by. But I think we've, uh, we're done with the sound for now, unless a train comes, but we'll just pause it. This is going to be the first time I ever edit the audio. I've never edited the audio, but I'm going to actually do minimal editing. That'll probably take 10 minutes, which I'm okay with. Okay. So what were we talking about? This is what I was going to ask you. A lot of people, when they get into comedy, it's like they are, for me, it's like I'm a contrarian and I like saying the things that people like might not want to hear or just going against what is generally accepted in the culture and trying to make it funny. Do you feel like being in the military and being in like that orderly state of affairs made you more want to get into comedy to be able to like, like just talk shit about it? I wouldn't say it made me want to do it because, like, I've loved it since I was a little kid. And I always I always got in trouble in school because for, like, disrupting the class, whatever you want to call it, for making a joke. Because I was, like, I've always had a thrill of just being able to make people laugh off of something I said. Not so much something I did. Like, I was never the guy, like, dressing up goofy to make people laugh. It was always right. just something I said. And I've, I've just had a deep passion and love for it my whole life. And I just feel like the military adds to my repertoire of things I can talk about. It gives me a lot of material to talk about. And the fact that not only can I be contrarian to it, because a lot of people don't like talking about things that you shouldn't say. Like, you don't see a lot of people making jokes that are anti-military. But I can because... I am in the military. I've given eight years of my life to it already. By the time I get out, it'll be eight and a half. So it's like I can say these things. Not only that, but it, since I like actually believe them, it allows me to be myself when I do it. So it comes out naturally. But it, it would resonate with people in the military because they would hear what I say and they'd be like, yeah, he's right. Like, that's true. That is what happens. Right. And it would, they'd be able to laugh about it. 
Yeah, because you have the most disarming trait when it comes to making fun of the military. And a lot of people who get mad... You know, some of the people who get really mad about anti-military stuff were in the military themselves, and for them it's understandable. And even they wouldn't be able to get particularly mad at you because you did your time. And you served more time than probably a lot of people do. Like, most people probably don't do eight years. Is that... Am I wrong about that, or do they do... Is that about what people do? It, it, it differs from the branches. People in the Air Force normally do the, mo- the longest because they have the most relaxed life. Then it's us right behind them. Uh, people in the, the Army or the Marine Corps, it's very... It, it's very less common. They usually get out after their first tour because it's, it's a lot more strenuous and exhausting than what it is that we do. And, okay, and have you ever encountered, because what I was going to say is that a lot of the people, more of the people, because so few people join the military, I don't know what the percentage of the population, but it's probably like 2 or 3%. It's less than 1%. Less than 1%. Yeah. So a lot of the people who would get mad are just like, patriots quote-unquote you know they like they're like the annoying type of america like they drive a jeep wrangler and they have a flag on the back but they never served any time have you ever encountered some of those types of people getting mad at what you said on stage or have you not had that experience yet uh just once and she didn't know i was in the military she's also in the military she thought i was just up there talking shit she didn't she confronted me privately and I showed her my military ID and I was like, no, everything I've said is because I can. And she's like, oh, okay. Like, she's like, if you, it was somewhere else, I would care. She's like, but I get it. She's like, I totally get it. It's just like, like, uh, like you make anti-Semitic jokes all the time. And for somebody who wasn't Jewish, it, they would like, people would be like, whoa, what the fuck? But since you are Jewish, they're like, oh, that's actually kind of funny. You know what I'm saying? It's like. Like that Dave Chappelle skit when he was the black guy dressed up in the Klan. Like if that was a white guy, it'd be a little risky. But since it was him, everybody's like, dude, that's fucking hilarious. You know, it's, it's like the same concept. Yeah, the perfect example is um, the Chris Rock joke about like black people versus N-words. Like imagine a white guy telling that joke. There would be riots in the street. But it's Chris and he's allowed to do it because he's black. Dude, the only white comic I've ever seen say the N-word is Louie. Other than that, it's just like... And even when he says, I'm kind of like, wow. I know. It's, it's about the riskiest thing you could do. It's pretty far It's, up it's way up there. It's like, as a, as a white comic making an N-word joke, that's, that's, that's top tier. <coughs> but I actually relate in the sense that, from what you were saying before, that what made me want to get into comedy was saying funny things in class. Because I was the same. I wasn't the class clown that would like jump up on the table. and I wasn't no. doing wild shit. I was a more quiet kid. But then if the teacher said something and I had something like witty to say, then I would raise my hand and I would say the thing and get the class to laugh and sometimes even get the teacher to laugh, which is always a nice thing. But then I was like, that was my best feeling. Like I would be, if I did that like first period, the rest of the day, I would be on like cloud nine if I made like a good joke early in the day. Yeah, it would be like the highlight of my day. More than class, more than if a cute girl talked to me more than if like I did really well at practice it was always if I was able to get like this uproarious laugh because it was not necessarily something I sought out but it was if the opportunity presented itself I couldn't let it go and 
especially if like I knew that the teacher would get mad and I'd get kicked out of class or my parents would get called. It was almost like it was a necessary risk because that's how much I wanted to make people laugh. And I, I just didn't care. And I've always been that way, even in, even in the Navy because uh, the military is actually, everybody thinks we're hardcore and, and just like don't fuck around. But that's not true. The military has actually been very softened and you have to be very careful with, with what you say. Meaning like I can't even call somebody dumb without getting possibly in trouble nowadays in the military, which is hilarious because there's so many fucking dumb people in the military. And it, like you need to be told like, dude, you're being fucking stupid. You're going to get somebody hurt. And they're more afraid of you hurting somebody's feelings than like actually getting the job done correctly. So it, it, it's like, if I were to ever make a joke that was insensitive, like, I would get in trouble. Like, I remember one time we were doing training about, like, equality, go figure, and some girl was, made, like, do you remember the chive back when the chive got really popular and it had pictures of, like, girls in, like, bikinis and stuff? No, I don't, I don't know what that is. The chive is, like, it was this website. They even have a TV channel now. People would just post pictures to there all the time. It was almost like, it was almost like a Reddit except for young males. And like they, they would post hot girls on there all the time. And it was really popular in the military. And, and people would always like scroll through it. And it was like barstool sports kind of. Just a big fattish okay. thing. Like if you followed it, if you were into it, then you were cool. And they made these shirts that said keep calm and chive on. And this girl was complaining at training that, oh, everybody's always looking at the chive and everything like that. And I was like, yo, just keep calm. Don't worry about it. And, like, everybody laughed at it. And I got in so much fucking trouble for it, for the, that one little comment because it was insensitive to, to her fight. And it's like, no, it wasn't. It was a pun, if anything. Like, I wasn't even making fun of her. Like, Wait, so explain to me two things. The context, like, I don't understand. Was this, like, some sort of meeting? Like, what were you guys... Like, was it like a classroom kind of setting where you said this and then oh, everyone yeah. laughed? It was It was the whole ship. So 275 people were at this training trying to figure out ways how to create more equality, I guess, because there's, there's a stigma with the military that it's a male-dominated place and it can be intimidating for, you know, female sailors. And but there are like way that. more men in the military. Right. By there, a mile. No, there is. Like, we actually have the highest percentage of women, and it's still only, like, 25%. And that's that's an actual stat. I could be off by, like, a number or two. But, um, so they were trying to defeat that stigma and make it more of, uh, they're trying to say all we are is blue. That's what the phrase was, because we're all sailors. That's how it should be. And what it was was... Mm -hmm. Blue Lives Matter? I guess. <laughs> what, what they were trying to do is they were trying to find things that are that were going on on this ship. And it was an open setting for everybody to talk about. And basically all it was was for people... Like, a lot of these people who create these arguments, like, they do it because they know it's going to get them attention. Because the same girl that addressed that argument of people looking at the chive was always watching shows with like the, the screensaver on her background was the dude from power with his fucking shirt off it's like come on like right. you're just doing it because you know it's going to get you attention and if it goes away it gives you some sense of power like i am the one that that had that happen yeah so, so when she was complaining about the chive 
I was like, you're hanging around with the people. Like, you're getting your friends in trouble. Like, you're hanging around with them and scrolling with them. I've seen you. So when she said that, their, their popular phrase was keep calm and chive on. And I turned around and I said, hey, just keep calm and, you know, don't worry about it. And everybody laughed because they knew what I was talking about. And I wasn't actually telling her to keep calm. Like, I didn't, give, I, don't, I didn't even watch this shit. So first of all, you were just making a joke pretty clearly. And second of all, it seemed like you were kind of like she was being a little bit hypocritical in the moment. <laughs> Did she not want to know what was going on over here? No, she looked around, she saw us, she's like, oh, and then just turned right around. <laughs> well, it seems like, um, so you just wanted, like, she was being kind of a hypocrite, and you wanted to point that out. Now, how how did you get I didn't in trouble? I didn't even want to point that out, because that's what came later when somebody talked to me about it. I'm like, no, look, first of all, all I was doing was making a joke. I wasn't trying to, like, knock down her plight and, and oppress her. Like, I didn't give a shit. Like, I, I had an all-male division, so that wasn't an issue anyway, but... Um, all I wanted to do was make a joke because the tagline that she like the people she was complaining about the company the 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 forum whatever you want to call it the phrase that they coined and were famous for fit so well with the situation that was going on and I got in trouble because higher higher ranking people talked to my supervisor about it so then my supervisor yelled at me about it so then I had to apologize to her and all this shit because it seemed, what did you have to what was the apology like did you have to sit with her and like a, yeah. an officer yeah and and, and like kind of like getting in trouble at school like sitting with the principal and the mm-hmm. vice principal and the person you offended and like a guidance counselor or whatever was it kind of like that right and i couldn't even i couldn't even just be like hey i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that i had to give her like we had to sit down and talk about it they even wanted me uh, at one point to give training in like a month or so about like equality in the workspace. And then the guy I worked for thankfully was like, that's a tad bit extreme. What he did was just a joke. That's it. Like at least he stood up for me in a way, but he was, he was more mad at me for saying it for like when he's like, it was funny, but like, you just don't say it because you knew, know what's going to happen. He knew I wasn't trying to knock her down or nothing like that. It was just, and the same thing happened in school before. Like, uh, I used to get in trouble. I had a speech class, like where we have to give up and give different types of speeches and everything like that, which is one of the reasons I have kind of a somewhat good stage presence was because they taught me things in that class. But we had a debate coming up, and the the debate between my group and another group was about like firearms in America. And I found a website with like um, different like arguments and stuff and laws. And we had to give him our references before the debate. And then he goes and he posts our debate on the, the board. I'm like, you're giving away all of our arguments. And he's like, oh, no, they would have found that anyway. And I'm like, that's bullshit. And he got mad for me cussing and he was going to kick me out. He's like, either get up here and apologize to the whole classroom for your mouth or I kick you out. And I go up there and I'm like, look, I'm fucking sorry. <laughs> so he, he kicked me out. Dude. I got suspended for three days because of that. And this was how old were you when that happened? I was either a freshman or a sophomore. I took that class two years. I think I was a yeah. I was a freshman. I was a freshman in high school, so 14. So yeah, it was just stupid. So when you would clown around in class, were you the type of person that would also that your teachers didn't like you, or was it kind of like a mixed bag? Were there teachers who like appreciated? what you were doing or were they all like uh, Shane's just a troublemaker 
Yeah, you, you either lo- it was the same thing with people in my school in general. Like you either loved me or you hated me. One of the, like some people hated me. They thought I was disrespectful. They thought because my dad was really really popular in my hometown. He was he was the editor of the newspaper in a small town. Everybody thought that I just oh he thinks his dad's popular so he could get away with shit, which wasn't even true. But um, it was either that. Or they knew I was smart. They knew I was actually a good guy. I just liked being funny because my grades, my grades were good to an extent. So it was, it was either or. Right. Okay. And um, so, at what point would you say you became like? Were you interested in comedy since you were little, or like what point? Who was the first comedian that really got you into comedy? To where like. I wanted to watch stand-up comedy for, like, routinely. Yeah, where you, one, wanted to, like, you became very interested in it and that you wanted to maybe try or you started, like, dabbling with the idea of someday doing it. Ron White. Yeah. Okay. Which, this is weird. Fun fact about Ron White. I didn't even know this until his most recent comedy special came out, but he was actually in the Navy. I had no idea. He got kicked out for drugs, but shocking, but I just... Shocking. Yeah. I loved funny movies and I loved funny TV shows as a kid, but I just, I never wanted to be an actor because, I mean, acting is all pretending to be somebody you're not. Comedy, that's like them being them, which is what I was doing with my jokes and stuff. And I remember they had that blue collar comedy tour thing on Comedy Central where it was like, it was like the four guys, Ron White was one of them and the other three were just like hacky redneck comics I, I always thought Ron White was the funniest in that crew right and he was like among their fan base he was the least favorite because he was the least like them he's from the south so he has a southern accent but his comedy isn't hacky his comedy isn't yeah so what it was Jeff Foxworthy yeah. Larry the Cable Guy and then one other guy I forget I don't know his name he was known for that here's your sign thing but they all were gimmicky and hacky like get her right, done right because yeah, it was get her done. And then with Jeff, it was like, you might be a redneck if... Yeah. yeah. And they tried to do that to Ron White with the whole they call me tater salad thing. And that became like a dark horse on his career because then everybody wanted him to tell that. And he's like, no, like I don't want to tell that joke anymore. Here's my other shit. And his shit is so... Like my mom hates him. She thinks he's dirty, filthy, everything like that when he's actually hilarious and he pushes envelopes which is what a comedian does and then after him it was man whatever was on I would try to watch it you know but then like I would watch it I became what you would call a casual fan in comedy after that once I joined the Navy because I just didn't have the time to watch it (laughs) and then once I got Netflix again then it was like Bill Burr Joe Rogan, all those, like Dave Chappelle and everything like that, then I started getting back into it. I was never into the super famous comedians. I was never a big, I I think Cat Williams and Jeff Dunham are two of the most overrated comics ever, like ever. Cat Williams and Jeff Dunham? Yeah, completely different, but at the same time, they were both hugely popular at one point, and I just, I never thought they were funny. Same thing with Kevin Hart. I don't think he's that funny as a comedian. As an actor, he's hilarious, but as a comedian, I don't, I don't think he's very funny. Okay. So, one of the things... Okay, well, you just mentioned something, and then we've talked about it before, and you talked about what you worry about with doing too much Navy stuff, and that you would get pigeonholed and become, like, the Navy comic. Right. And did, is that kind of based off what you saw with what they tried to do with Ron White? 
or or just yeah, I guess comedians of. in general how they that happens to them just just comedians in general uh, a lot of guys like if you do one thing over and over it's like and that gets you a fan base then all of a sudden that's gonna be like the expectance of you you know what I'm saying like if like Jeff Dunham, if he came out and just started doing material and didn't have any puppets, everybody's gonna be like, "What the fuck is this?" You know? Or yeah, like Jeff Dunham could never do a regular comedy set. He can never do it. He couldn't do it. Imagine if Jim Gaffigan did a special and didn't do one food joke or one joke about him being fat. Yeah, it, I mean, because I've heard, you know, I mean, we both listen to Joe Rogan's podcast quite a bit, right. and it's like when he has Bird on, and Bird always. The machine, it, that story is like the basis for his comedic career, and it's great that it happened. And I'd probably be, I'd have mixed feelings about it if something like that happened with me, if like one of my stories or one of my bits got me famous. Because he doesn't seem to mind it, and he kind of like will tell the joke if people are chanting for it, or he'll like, you know, go to a bar with people after and tell them the story. But I feel like I don't even like telling the same joke three times in a week. And if it was like, if I sold out a whole weekend and I was doing six shows in the weekend and I had to do this 20-minute story every show, I would hate that. Right. Like, I feel like Joe, like, which is crazy, too, because when those, when you get to that level, you're going to have to tell the same jokes over and over. And I feel like, I feel like that's when it mentally becomes kind of exhausting. Like, you're going to be to a new place, new venue every week. But, like, uh, for example, uh, Brennan Schaub's new special came out in January he filmed it in January and I saw him a month before that at Gotham Comedy Club and like watching the, the special for me was pointless because I saw every piece of that material a month before and you have to do it over and over and over again when you're shooting a special because that's by the time you reach the special you've done it so many times mm -hmm. I just feel like part of the whole new part of the excitement with comedy for me right now is just always coming up with new stuff and then seeing if it works and I get bored like I love it when people laugh but I get bored of retelling jokes I really do yeah so I mean I have noticed that about you that you will you come out with a lot of new bits which I respect because I've always been someone and I've been doing it four years now a little over and I always would bother it would bother me if I went to the mic and I see the this comic who's been you know with some of them it's more understandable where you see them and they're crafting something they're trying to craft the five minutes and they're taking making tweaks here and there and then i see what they're doing but then for other comics it's like they make five minutes in a couple weeks and then they keep doing the five minutes they don't change anything about it and i don't i don't have much respect for that but then with you it's like you're pretty i mean how long have you been doing it now like six months six months now yeah six months and like you do bring new material very frequently and you also try the like when i know you have a joke you'll try it in a different way you'll align it differently in the set like i don't know that i've heard you do the same set twice exactly at all you know Never. is that kind of like i mean how do you feel like is that way are you going for that or like does it bother you do you get bothered similarly to me when you see comics doing that stuff I get bothered when I know they're just open micers because it's like, like there's some, com I'm not going to drop any of the open mic comics names because I don't want to disrespect any of them. I don't have any ill will towards them, but there's some guys that, that do the same jokes routinely, but I also know that those guys, they either are in a competition 
or they're pretty close to maybe having an actual show or a paid show and they know that and i know that so i know they're working on stuff but there's other guys that i know are on the same level as me where they're they're just doing open mics they they're not going to be getting booked anytime soon and they do the same joke every mic or every other mic and not only that but they say the joke the same exact way that's the that's that's where that's what gets me the most is that they have a good joke we know it's good all of us know they know and they'll tell it for me if i'm doing gonna do a joke that i know is funny at a mic then i'm at least gonna do it differently i'm gonna take a different approach with it or i'm gonna change some words or the alignment of it. i'm gonna change something about it i very rarely at a mic but the, they they will do it verbatim the same way and I mean you'll see I mean you'll see because you're six months in and you'll see some of these guys will be doing it in two years still oh I've, I've already seen it in six months there's a couple comedians where I can probably tell you their set list mm-hmm. already and if you're if you're a hobbyist if you only do this like once or twice a week at most whatever I'm not you're just up there for fun <laughs> you're not it's, it's whatever but when you're when you're doing like five or six mics a week sometimes and that's still all you're doing it's like bro like like it's not affecting my career in any way so i don't put too much stock into it but it's like at the same time these are people who who are complaining about not getting booked or or they're spreading bitterness or negativity about another comic for getting booked and it's like they get hard feelings for it it's like what what annoys me the most is if if you host the mic uh i appreciate it because you're doing something good for the other comics but at the same time that if you're hosting a mic that night take a back seat right like you're doing this for us if somebody else were running a mic they would do it like when you run olives you do material in the beginning but that's that's the warm-up pitches for the comics in between comics you might do 30 seconds of material more often than not you're going to do riffing off of the previous material and then segueing to the next comic but if you go up there and you do a, a minute or two minutes of the same material that you're doing all the time like it's not your night to work shit out. Yeah. Like quit. It, it puts a lot of time in between comics. Like it's not like. And then I'll talk to them about it, and they'll be like, "Well, there's only nine comics," and it's like, "Yeah, but this isn't a show. We don't have a time gap to fill. We've all got live. We've all got stuff we need to do as well. Like we're just waiting to go up. Like don't prolong it just because there's less of us." Like, That's like the cardinal sin of hosting, is when the host is doing a minute or two in between every comedian. And I've had a couple people, like, host olives for me when I'm not feeling it. And I see them doing that. And I, I've... There was one person in particular that I told them after the first time they did it. They got off stage and I went up and I was like, hey, so, you can't do that. You already did your time. It's over. And they continued to do it throughout the night. And I was like, you know, I probably just went outside to smoke. And just like not see it, but it's just like because it just bothers the comedians. You become your your job as host is to be likable. I mean, that's like once you get to doing shows and then you're hosting shows, it's like that's the main thing is as the host is to be likable because that way, if the opening act or the feature act goes up and they don't do so well, then at least when you come back on stage, it's kind of a relief for the audience. It kind of resets the audience and it gives the next comedian a, a clean slate, and they're not kind of like simmering on what just took place but especially in a room of comics if you're going to do time between every comedian you become the most unlikable person in the room yeah. by far especially especially if it's jokes that 
If they don't work that well when you get your five minutes, they're not going to work that well when you host. No way. And it just, it, it makes it, it, if you're doing a bar mic, those are already hard enough because it's extremely intrusive on the patrons of the place that they're not expecting it. Like, I don't give a shit, like, because I'm there for my career, but it, it's really hard to do well at a bar mic because of that. And if you go up there and pile on top of it, you're just making that swim up the river even tough, more treacherous for us. And it's, it's just, and I've seen it. And that, like a couple of these mics, I don't go to anymore because of that reason. Because it's almost as if, and, and there's some guys too that when they do run a mic, it's like, it's like an oil, like a drop of oil of power in this gear cog, and they just go crazy with it. Like they bump their friends, they'll knock you down if they don't like you. It's almost like, it's like they're begging you to like kiss their ass to like help you out to get five minutes at a bar mic where nobody gives a shit. It's like if that's how it's gonna be. Like, I'm not going to go here because it's not like there's going to be a booker or a, a big name comedian that's going to pop into this little bar in New Jersey and, and give me a spot. Like, I'm just up there for time. And if it's that negative and that arduous, I'm just not going to go. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I like I'm a megalomaniac, pretty open about it. Like, I would be an amazing dictator, for example. I've said it before, <laughs> but. I abused my power in minimal ways at Olives, and that was only after now running it for many months. And you know, like, but but I'm I'll I'll do it. Try to do it in a way where I'm like, yeah, I like I. It, for example, if I'm doing my set off the top, and I'll look at my phone, and I've been up there for five minutes, I'll be like, well, I should probably get off right now, but I'm not gonna, because I'm gonna do another joke because I've gone mad with power. Like I'll, I'll kind of be open about it, and then people don't seem to get too bothered by it. Plus, it's like. I don't even know why I do that because hosting at Olives, the opening set, is like a guaranteed bomb. But sometimes it's nice to get one or two jokes to land under those circumstances, you know? But here's what I was going to ask you. Because you're, you're pretty good off the bat. You're better than most people are, especially at this point. And I see guys come out the gate hot for a month. They're doing well. And then they hit a rut pretty quickly where they become, they start experimenting natural things that you'd expect to see someone going through that's how for that's how it happened for me like i was good for a, a few months and then i kind of tapered off and then i i fell into a bit of a rut but you don't make a lot of mistakes that early comics make i'm trying to like this something that this is something that interests me like when people i mean it seems like you had skills that you brought from other aspects of your life that you bring on stage that take people a longer time to develop like your stage presence for example like I feel like you have stage presence of someone who's been doing it a couple years even though you've only been doing it six months like do you th what do you feel like gives you the that stage presence that stage confidence like do you do you feel like it relates to anything well thanks first of all I do appreciate it but yeah I mean I've always um, I've never had state like I get nervous of the acceptance factor like you don't want to go up there and not be funny and the first time I did comedy it, it's intimidating you know it's like the first like when the first time you ever play a sport and you walk into that locker room or on that field for the first time it's intimidating because like like are the other guys gonna like you are they gonna talk shit about you but uh, that speech class helped a lot um, and then being in the Navy part of my job I'm a navigator, so I have to brief 
things about navigation before we ever pull into a port or anything like that. So I'm talking to all of the highest ranking people on my ship in front of other people. So I just naturally had to, to learn it. So how many people would you be in front of usually when you were giving these briefings? Um, no more than 40. That's still like, that's the type of crowd that a new comedian, if they were going in front of 40 people who were listening, that that would be extremely anxiety inducing. Right. You know, so, and you did this, at what point did you start giving these briefings and like how often? Um, maybe midway through my time on the ship. So 2013, 14. And it really just depends. Maybe once, twice a week, sometimes less. It, only out to sea. Import, never, because we're not going anywhere. But out to sea quite often. And even then, my my work center was right next to where the captain would sit so I was always right next to the commanding officer of my ship but like not to sound cocky or anything I just have natural confidence in this because even when I would tell those jokes in the classroom like if I just yell out something in a classroom and no one laughs that's going to be pretty fucking embarrassing but everybody would laugh so I know I can make people laugh right and just like when I did these briefs I, I knew that I knew a lot about my job and I know I can articulate myself better than most but I still get nervous even when I'm on stage I get nervous because it's like I'll, I'll get off and I'll be like damn it I forgot this joke because like I still I, I still have a bad habit now that when I like have you ever had a joke that you think is gonna hit and then it doesn't and then you're like oh shit I wasn't expecting this pretty much once a week or so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I it's really hard for me to like fuck where do I go from here because I have my set planned out in my head I don't, I, don't do, I don't write anything down. I don't have anything on my phone. I don't have anything on paper. Everything's in my head. So it's like, if, it's like almost like missing an exit on the freeway. And then all of a sudden you don't know where to go then. When that joke doesn't land, sometimes I'll panic. And I'll go to, the, to, the, to something else that I had planned. And then I'll, be, I'll get off and I'm like, fuck, I forgot like th- this bit or this bit. And it, so I do that still. But Yeah, that panic. And then everything goes blank. Because it's, it's, it's funny, too, that the panic is, like, um, self-fulfilling because once you start to panic, there's, like, the voice in your head is, like, oh, shit, you forgot the next joke. And, like, maybe you didn't even forget it. But because you're, like, I got to say something right now, and then the voice in your head is, like, not allowing you to think clearly and to remember the joke, which it might just take a second and it would pop back in. But I feel like, I don't know if you get that. But that's how, and it doesn't happen to me very often anymore, but it used to happen where if I did go blank, then I would just hear the voice in my head like, uh-oh, this is not good, Dave. Yeah. This is not good. Yeah, it's, 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 that's what happens to me because it's like, oh, shit, all right, now you got to go to something else. And then I forget what that something else is. And part of what made the joke so funny when it was created was how it transitioned, the smooth transition or segue. And if that's just rough, then then you bomb two jokes in a row right? and i'm still i'm still really bad at ending my set like it's like i'll get to a joke i'll tell it it either hits or it doesn't and then i'll pause for a second and then i'll just end it like because i'm up there thinking of a joke to say and i'm like all right what joke should i end on this one nah you know what I'm just gonna end it and by that time it's been like five awkward seconds of silence I'm like guys I'm Shane McMurdo it's just weird yeah I mean I will say this that your perception of time when you're the one on stage is very different than when you're the one sitting there because 
That five seconds that feels very awkward and feels like a really long time is actually not long as far as the audience is concerned. So I will say that it's not, it's never, because like, yeah, I mean, everything seems to slow down when you're on stage. It's the, it's, it's weird. Like the time perception gets so fucked up on stage because if you're killing, then you see the light and you're like, dude, it's already been, you're like, I feel like I haven't even been up here at all. But then if you're bombing, then you're waiting for the light and it's only been two and a half minutes. You're like, how's it only been two and a half minutes? It feels so much longer, right. you know? And then when you're silent, like those silences always feel longer than they actually are. And I feel like it's more, if you look like you're deliberately, if you at least make it look like you're deliberately taking a moment of silence or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like you're doing it on purpose. Usually people, when they're in that, that silence, their body language closes up and they, be, they look very uncomfortable. And then the audience knows like, oh, this was unplanned. Right. But if you do just take a moment and you just maintain your composure, confident body language, then people think you're in control still. Right. That's yeah. what it's about. But it's hard. Because it's, it's the same thing in boxing, man. Because I did that for a long time. Rounds are three minutes, which isn't that long, but maybe for the first bit, because you have that adrenaline rush, your legs are still fresh, your lungs are still fresh, that first round usually goes by pretty quick. Everything after that feels like forever, especially when you're exhausted because your back is tight, your stomach's burning, your legs are heavy, your arms are heavy, and your mind is running 100 miles per hour because there's con- you, you're constantly worried about what they're going to do and what you're going to do, and it just goes on forever. But if you're just watching a fight, it just seems like it either goes fast or it goes kind of slow, but not too much. And it's like if you pan- like I've panicked in a fight before, and it's all, it's all about instincts, reactions, and if, like if I throw a punch, like if I, if I know I have them set up for something and I completely miss it or it just doesn't have that hit, it's like, shit, where do I go from then? So that, that kind of helped me in a way too, is like I just have a natural way of dealing with nerves and performing through it because of that. But it, like I've made the same mistake and you've, you've seen almost every community, like when you have your set going and it's just silence, 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 and you like abandon your material and just like start trying to do crowd work. But by this point, the crowd's like pretty much over it. Like they don't want any, you up there anymore. So if you try to do crowd work with them, it's like, so, uh, what do you do for a living, sir? I work. It's like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, this yeah. is... My set's done. Like, this, this is done. And then when that happens, then I just shit on the crowd, and then, like, they just want me, like, gone. I have seen this happen before, and I feel like you're you're pretty good at this, especially being a young comic, because this takes a long time. Um, that I've seen you get crowds to hate you very quickly, but still, but then you get out of it. Like, I've seen you do this at Rhino. I remember one night in particular. I don't know if you remember this night. I don't remember when it was. It might have been like a month or two ago. But I remember you started your set and you were doing some of your quote-unquote sexist material, which is like, you know, you're just, you're kind of just like, like, I feel like we do more characters when we're on stage. We're not being our genuine selves. We're kind of being like, an exaggerated version. We're more willing to be, to say things that bother people. But I feel like, so you were doing it and you started off with maybe the wrong joke to start with, but you actually got them to turn around. And it seemed like, and Rhino can be a room where people can be sensitive 
and tepid there, and they'll turn on you fast, even though it's a good room, and I really love it. It's my favorite. Yeah, I know. It's it's. it's but I know exactly what you're talking. Exactly, because on any given night, you'll get one of these crowds, and they are waiting in a way they want to be offended a little bit. So, especially when when they see you go on stage, because you look like you, and they're like, I don't want to like this guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm talking just about yeah. some of them. But I remember this night, and you, you actually, you won them back. So I, they hated you for like two minutes, but then the last three minutes they liked you, and you were getting laughs. I think that was my very first set there. I think I know what you're talking about. Like, I was wearing, like, a long sleeve shirt. That was the day I actually had an anxiety attack, like, 30 minutes before that. So I was, like, mentally, I was not there. I kind of just phoned that one in. And, like, was that the one where I asked? I was like, like, yo, Dave, you're... You're Jewish. Do like? Do they look down on you if you're not funny or good with money? And then I looked at that black dude. It's like the same way they look at you guys. If you can't play <laughs> basketball. Yeah. And like nobody laughed. I'm like, oh shit. Like, all right. I think it was that. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Also, too, like there was a certain someone hosting. We can talk about that like off air. But there's some hosts back to hosts at mics. They're like, if you're in the comedy scene, you can't be easily offended. And then if you're running a mic or hosting a mic that night, you can't kind of manipulate the crowd to only like the type of comedy that you like because then you're like turning them against some of the comedians and like that's not your job i've seen that happen many times and you probably know exactly who i'm talking about without having to mention this person's name i'm pretty sure i do yeah like it was and that's kind of what they did to a few of us that night but like that was the same i think that was the same exact night you had to follow that fucking music shit yeah yeah wasn't that the night um didn't you, weren't there girls there that, right, that you had invited there? Was that that same night? No, that was the next week. Okay. Well, yeah, but there, there was a, they, they, what did they, they did like karaoke. It's, this is an open mic, this is a comedy open mic, and, but these friends of this girl decided to go up and sing karaoke for her birthday, was, but none of them were comedians, and it wasn't funny. It was very uncomfortable, It wasn't even karaoke. It was like they all came out in, like, flashy sequin dresses and bleach-blonde wigs, and they did lip-syncing to a Cher song, I believe, and, like, nobody knew about it, and then it was right before your set, and you had to follow that, like, immediately. Yeah, I think I actually I have, I have that set on YouTube, I'm pretty sure. No, dude, it was hilarious because you're just like, what's happened to this place, man? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I thought was that funny. was for me. Who the fuck's Octavia? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was funny. But yeah, yeah that's, that's a good time. No. What, what made, like, I've never asked you this. What made you want to get into comedy? Like, other than loving it, what made you say, like... Because there's a difference between wanting to do something and then taking that first step or a first few big steps into actually dedicating yourself to it um well first of all the same thing you were saying about being a class clown and making people laugh in class and also i used to watch comedy central presents all the time so that was when i mean i remember i watched like this was before this was right when dane cook was blowing up he was starting to get popular i think i was in eighth grade like 2004 ish yeah Yep, I'm, it was around then. It might have been a little after. It might have been like when he he was famous, okay. and that's when I kind of became more familiar with comedy and like realized what it was because I was like 13 years old, mm-hmm. and then it was around that because I had seen Ellen when I was a little kid, but I didn't know what comedy was. I didn't know what she was doing. I just knew everyone was enjoying it, 
And this was I was like seven years old, right. so I remember being at like a family party. They were watching Ellen, and I was like, I don't know what she's doing, but everyone seems to like it, you know. So, and then so I took a mental note of that kind of, and then I started I started listening to Dane Cook with my friends when I was like 13, 14. and then I was like, oh, this is a thing. Like you can do this professionally. I didn't realize, and then I was watching Comedy Central presents, and that's where I was introduced to like. Daniel Tosh, Dimitri Martin. Dude, if you look at the people that were like doing it back then, like and who they are now, it's crazy. Yeah. The people we were like had access to back then. So many people started with a half hour on Comedy Central presents. Mike Berbiglia. Mm-hmm. So I love these guys, but then I also at the same time because I would watch Comedy Central presents all the time, I saw these comics that were mediocre and not that good, and I would be like. If they can do that, because I, I would see a guy like Daniel Tosh, I'd be like, he's amazing. I don't know if I could pull that off, but I would see some of these no-name comedians who got Comedy Central presents, and I was like, they're doing it professionally. I think that I could do it as well as them, at least. You know what I mean? Right. And then around 17 years old, because I had become like in many, in a lot of my classes, at least where the teachers liked me and they would allow me to do it, I'd become known as like a funny. Person. Like right. people, when I raise my hand, people will kind of look and be like, what's Dave going to say right now? <laughs> and and I was not anywhere close to where I am now. Like I wouldn't say anything that was ridiculous. <laughs> I would just say something witty. It would be something clever. Yeah. And, um, and so then I was like, around 17, I decided like I'm going to be a comedian for sure. And then it was around, I was probably 20 years old. And my friend Luke found out about Olives and he was like, he, he pretty much made me do it. Even though I wanted to do it, I was still really nervous because, and I, I'm gonna, I'll ask you about this, but I had written, before I went on stage ever, I would written probably like 25 to 40 jokes, somewhere around there. And I had become like kind of attached to them and I didn't want to know if they were good or bad, you know what I mean? Right. So that I was kind of avoiding starting because I knew I could start, I knew I had jokes, but I didn't want to know the truth about the jokes. I just wanted to like go on thinking that I'm really funny and like these are good jokes, you know what I mean? And as yeah. it turned out, probably two of them were funny out of the 25 or 40 jokes, you know what I mean? Right. So did you, when before you started, had you thought of jokes? How long had you considered it? I mean like, okay, yeah, how long had you, had you been like ready to go on stage before you did go on stage? That's, it's kind of weird. It's like, uh, it's like a two part question. So like, my first open mic was actually in 2016. But that was with zero aspirations. Of that was in San Diego, right? Yeah. And you met Marcus? Yeah, that was the night I met Marcus. Okay. And it was weird, though. We didn't even meet. We just crossed paths. We didn't speak to each other. He saw me perform. I saw him perform. And that was the first time I had ever done it because my friends had, like, implored me. Because whether it was in school or the military, I, everybody always thought I was just super funny and told me I should do it. But I was also aware enough that there's a difference between being funny with your friends and being a comedian. Because if I just went up there and I'm like, dude, so I was talking to my friends the other day, like, people aren't going to laugh at that shit. Like, so I wrote down a whole, I think my very first set actually was about, like, how has there, like, there's so many shootings in America, how has one never happened at Walmart based off of the people that shop there? That was like what the whole five minutes was about. I wrote it like a week before I went up and like performed it over and over in my head and then went up there and I did okay like I did okay for somebody doing their first time didn't do it again until this year but it was always something like I wanted to do in the back of my head 
And at that time, I was with my ex, just super toxic. She, she's like, I'm embarrassed. I would never go see that. So she made me not want to do it because I was like, oh, if I do that, then I'll lose her, which is the same reason I quit boxing. And it was like... She sounds really great. Oh, dude, she's amazing. Like, <laughs> dude. But I broke up with her, and then I was still in the Navy. Like, I couldn't, like, break up with her and be like, hey, Navy, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I still had to do it. And, like, I, I reached this point where it was like I didn't want to be in the military anymore and because it just was not satisfying to me anymore. But it's also like if I get out, like, what am I going to do? I don't want know what else I want to fucking do. I don't want to go to school. I hate it. Like, and it just, it, it like, I was in a, a rock, in between a rock and a hard spot, what they would say. And, like, the, the one thing I always did when I was, like, in a bad mood, I would, I'd just go watch a comedy special and I loved it. And everybody kept telling me, like, dude, try to get back into it. My sister-in-law, who's a, a comic out in Vegas, she was like, just do it. Like, you've got what it takes, just do it. So I wrote a whole set down, that very first set I did. And I went up at, at Barry's that one that Sunday night in January. And the reason I was so nervous then was because it's like, last time I did it was just to fuck around. This time I'm doing it because it's like, this is what I want. Before I even went up, I said, this is what I want to do eventually. Right. So if I do horrible what then you know what i'm saying so it's like i put all this unnecessary pressure on myself plus the additional pressure that comes with it anyway mm -hmm. so it's like i already had a bit ready i had and then another bit right after that because it was like that was my outlook on it because that was the only mic i did for a while because of my work schedule so it's like every week i have to do something new to avoid that other thing so that's i actually had so much material ready uh by the time i i got to go yeah well, that probably also contributed to your good start, that yeah, you, had you had things to say. Yeah. All right, well, um, there are other things that I want to talk about, but I'll have you back on the podcast, right, and sure. it'll be under better circumstances, <laughs> yeah. and then I'm also going to add a video element to it, so we'll, we'll get into that next time. But uh, thanks for doing it, Shane. I'm super down. No problem. All right. All right. Story time with Dave. Listeners, thanks, thanks for listening. You know we love you. See you next time.